Now the, the next one up. He, he's the new leader. And God comes to him and assures him. He says, I'm going to be with you. You can be strong. You can be, be courageous because I'm there. And then Joshua announces to the nation, all right, we're in. Like, we're moving out. Pack your bags. We're heading into the promised land. You got three days, and we're moving out. And after he does that, he has an interesting conversation with a couple of the groups of the nation. It's found in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. If you want to follow along that way, Scripture will be on the screen. It's on the Version app. In verse 12 of chapter 1, we read, But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You're to help them until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. If you want to read the whole backstory, it's in Numbers chapter 32. Uh, these two and a half tribes come to Moses. The last time they came to the east side of the Jordan, they're looking over into the promised land, and they realized this is great pasture land over here, and they had tons of cattle. So they appealed to Moses, look, I know God's given us the promised land, but can we stay on this side of the Jordan, because this is where the best pasture is. It's going to be great for all of our cattle. And there's some back and forth between them and Moses in Numbers 32, but finally Moses says, okay, I'm going to let you do that under one condition. And that is when we get ready to go in and occupy the promised land, you got to go with us first. You got to help us settle the land over there. I know you're not going to live in there. I know your people aren't going to be in there. Your cattle's not going to be in there. You're not going to really get any benefit in there, but you're going to go with us because we're doing this thing together and you're a part of our family. So you're going to go with us. And Moses. Then Joshua demonstrate what we see all throughout the Bible. Real simple principle. It's the principle, we is greater than me. We is greater than me. Life is not, he's saying to these tribes, life's not just about what you want. Life's not just about what you get out of it. Not, life's not just about you getting what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Sometimes you do things for the good of us because we is greater than than me. I mean, let's be honest. You're not a good parent if you haven't occasionally said to your kids, look, this ain't all about you. Like where we eat, it's not up just to you. There's four others of us here going to eat too, right? I mean, if you hadn't had that, you need to have it on the way home, right? Because good parents have that conversation with their kids every once in a while. This isn't just about you. You're not the only one that live in this house, right? We've got a whole family that lives in this house, and we've got to think about everybody. That's good parenting. Me is not greater than we. We is greater than, than me. And that's what Joshua say. Look, you got, you got to fight. And, and he not only says, you will go. You, you're you're going to go with us. If you read it, he says, you're going to go first. You're leading this parade. You're not kind of tagging along in the background. Like, you're up front, get your trumpet, get your fuzzy hat, whatever you need to lead this parade, because you're up front, and you're going to lead us into the promised land. You'll go, 
and you'll go first. And then he told him, you're not just going to go first. You will send your very best to this expedition. Uh, You're not going to send the guys that are almost dead over there and make them fight with us. We don't need them. He specifically says, you will send your fighting men. And what that meant all throughout the Bible was you're going to send your elite. You're sending special forces with us. You're not sending the scabs on this trip. We want the very best. I know that you're not going to benefit directly from this, but we is greater than me. You will go. You're going to go first. You will send your best. And then he says, you will finish the job. You're not leaving until it's over. In, in the passage that I read, Joshua says, You're to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as He has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. You're staying with us till the job's finished, because we is greater than me. Now, we is greater than me is not a popular slogan today. Like, I don't see anybody with a bumper sticker that says, we is greater than me. We are, we are very much a me society, right? Me is greater than anybody else, and what I want, when I want it, how much I want. Me being happy is kind of front and center in our mentality. But when you read the Old and the New Testament, it's a consistent message through both. No, you, you have to think about more than just you. And, and this applies to families it applies to organizations. It applies to your office and your job that sometimes decisions are made for the good of the organization and they may not directly benefit you. It applies to churches. Sometimes churches have programs and spend money on things that don't directly benefit you. But we's greater than me. It applies to nations and family. It applies to so many different areas of our life that we is greater than me. And, and we kind of push back on that. Here's a couple of questions, a couple of diagnostic questions to see how you're doing with this we is greater than me idea. Here's the first question. When have I championed a person or cause that did not have a direct benefit for me? Like when was I leading the parade for a cause or a person, even though I wasn't going to benefit from whatever took place? Or when was I leading the parade for somebody who got something that I wanted? Like, that's a hard one. When when am I championing the fact that they got the position over me? Another question, kind of the opposite of that question. How irritated do I get when someone asks me to help with something that doesn't directly benefit me? Like, there's that little thing inside that goes, ugh, I'm going to get nothing out of that. Third question. Am I excited, frustrated, or indifferent when decisions are made that benefit others but not me. I mean, what's my emotional radar when there's a, a good decision that's made, but I know I'm not going to get anything out of that? Am I excited because it's a good decision? Am I indifferent? Am I, am I frustrated? I, I'm not suggesting that we should never champion our own causes. I, I'm not suggesting that we should never look out for our best interest. What I'm saying is that shouldn't be the only thing we're ever looking out for. My cause should not be the only one that I'm advancing because we is greater than me. And then at the end of chapter 1, this group that he's been talking to says, all right, we're in. We'll we'll do it. We agree. We're going to support this. We're for it. We is greater than me. And they give this line, 
as we were fully obedient to Moses, so we will be for you. Which really should not have been a lot of encouragement to Joshua. I don't know if you know how they treated Moses, but they weren't exactly fully obedient to Moses. So for the nation of Israel to say, yeah, we're going to follow you just like we did Moses, that's not a good sign. And how it plays out, we'll see as we go through the rest of the story. But they're on board at the end of chapter 1. We're behind you. We're in. We is greater than me. We're going to go for it. So then we get to, to chapter 2. And, and what's happening is we're beginning to see Joshua emerge as the leader. Like we met him in Joshua 1, and he's Moses' intern. Remember we talked about that last week. He's kind of in the shadows, and now he's beginning to give direction. He's beginning to cast vision. He's beginning to say, look, the, the rules that applied under Moses, they're going to apply under me. And then when we get to chapter 2, he starts making decisions. Here's the first verse of chapter 2. Then... Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So now Joshua's given direction. You're going to go do this, and you're going to do this. And one of his first decisions is... He secretly sends two spies into the promised land to do some reconnaissance. Kind of see what's going on in there. Get a feel for what's happening. Now it says he secretly does this. Who is he keeping it secret from? It's a legitimate question. Well, obviously the people in the promised land. But I think he's also keeping some of the details secret from the nation of Israel. We said last week that one of the things that helps us when it's time for us to show up, when it's time for us to take a step of faith and follow God somewhere, one of the things that helps us is to go public. And so we saw Joshua saying in chapter 1, look, three days, we're out of here. Pack your bags. We're leaving. You need to be ready. We're all leaving in three days. Very public. But then we kind of see the other side in chapter 2 where he's, he's formulating his plan in secret. I think both of those matter. Matter of fact, we could say it this way. Go public with the big picture early and then work the details out privately. Uh, yeah, go, God's put this on my heart. I believe God's leading me in this direction. I think I'm supposed to. I'm about to make this decision. But then when it comes to working out the nuts and bolts and the details of how you're going to accomplish that plan, it's probably not best to bring everybody in on that. It would have been impossible and impractical for Joshua to bring all of the nation of Israel together and say, okay, how do you guys think we ought to do this? Right? Totally impractical. And so he finds two guys and says, look, we're going to work on this together and nobody else is going to know about it. It's similar to the way Nehemiah got ready to rebuild the wall. If you're familiar, it's another Old Testament story. He went at night when nobody was around and he kind of checked out the wall and got his plans together before he revealed all of the details. That's what Joshua is doing. He's working in the background secretly on the details, and he sends two in, which I think is an interesting number. Anybody remember how many people Moses sent in the first time they were in this position? Yeah, 12. They sent 12, and they got it all wrong. So Joshua's back, and he's thinking, okay, 12's way too many. Like, we need to bring this group down a little bit. And that's, that's often what we learn as we go through life, is that th th there's a group of people that I can reveal the details and the plans, and I can get input 
from. And as we go along, sometimes we realize, okay, that, that was too many. Next time I need to do fewer people. Right? There's too many opinions and too many people in the room. I need to get fewer people and talk to a few less people. And I don't know what the number is. It's not a magic number. It's not like two's the magic number. It's, it's like somewhere between one and Facebook, like somewhere in that realm, right? One's probably not enough and we put too much on Facebook anyway, right? So somewhere in there, when God's putting something on our heart, we get this smaller group together and we, we say, look, help me pray. Help me work through this. Uh, another thing about Joshua 2.1, we see that faith and wisdom complement each other. They're not adversaries. Joshua makes this huge faith statement in Joshua 1. We're going in. With or without you. Three days, pack your bags, we're going in. Huge faith statement. But then at the beginning of chapter 2, he's using wisdom to start working through the details. He's like, okay, God gave me a brain. I'm supposed to actually work on this. Faith and wisdom are not competing against each other. They're not opposite ends of the same coin. They complement each other. You need both. You need to step out in faith because also given us a brain. Now, when the spies go into the promised land, the first person they meet, we're told, is a prostitute by the name of Rahab. As a matter of fact, the context suggests that she's not just a prostitute. She's running a house full of them, and she's the head of it. As I've mentioned before, likely the best little one in Jericho, right? This is what she's running. She's got her business going. What do we do with that information? I mean, what do we do that this is a character now in our story? A couple of thoughts. One is, in the Old Testament especially, in the stories, we sometimes call them narratives, so they're telling the story of somebody's life. In the Old Testament stories, the Old Testament does not stop (coughs) to point out every failure every person has. It doesn't take a time out in its story to go, oh, by the way, that's a bad thing. She shouldn't have done that. It hardly ever does that. You're not reading along in the Old Testament, and then suddenly the story goes, he really should not have married 700 wives. It just says he had 700 wives. He really should not keep adding wives. It doesn't say he should not have lied about that. It's telling the story. It's kind of like a superhero movie. Uh, superhero mo- hero movies are really popular right now, but I've never seen this in a superhero movie. When somebody kills somebody, like the bad guy kills somebody or, or makes a bomb or blows up a city or, or steals something, there's not like another character that comes on the screen and says, that was a really bad thing to do. He sh- that was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. Why? Well, because it's going to ruin the movie for one thing. But number two, they figure... If you watch the story long enough, you're going to figure this out. Like if you stay with the story long enough, you're going to realize that was bad and this was good and that's the bad guy and this is the good guy. You just got to stay with the story long enough. And that's kind of how the Old Testament presents its characters 
and its narratives. It's not that the Bible never addresses these issues. It does. The Bible addresses it in other places, but when it's telling a story, it just says, this was the person. And if you read the story long enough, if you stay in the story long enough, you'll figure out right and wrong. It's going to be real apparent. And I've known that sort of interpretive uh, uh, approach for years, but I was thinking this this week. Maybe in our relating to other people, particularly people who are unbelievers, or, or, or people who live in ways that we disagree with, maybe it's not necessary every time we see them to go, oh, just for clarity, I disagree with the way you live. I mean, maybe it's not necessary to point that out every time we're around them. Maybe like every time we sit down to coffee, we don't have to go, okay, before we have coffee, I just want to clear this up. I think you're offensive to God. Okay, decaf. (laughs) Maybe that's not necessary. Now look, I'm not saying that we don't have difficult conversations sometimes. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying we don't stand up for what's right. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, what I'm saying is kind of the way the Old Testament tells the story. Maybe those people whose lives you disagree with or whose actions you disagree with, maybe if you stay in their story long enough, you would get to influence those areas more. Maybe if you let them stay in your story long enough, without having to tell them how awful they are every time. Maybe if you just let them stay in your story that eventually those conversations are going to come up and those moments are going to come up. Maybe, maybe if you bring them closer to Christ's story and just let them be a part of Christ's story that He's going to get to those things eventually. Again, I, I'm not saying we never talk about hard things. I just, I kind of like the way the Old Testament does it. It's like, this is the story. Just stay in the story and watch God work and you be available for Him. Maybe that's what we need to do. Here's another thing about Rahab the prostitute. I've noticed in all of the Bible that God seems to enjoy using the most unexpected people to accomplish His purposes. I mean, consistently throughout the Bible, it's like the last person you think and God picks them and God puts them in a position of authority and God raises them up to be king or they influence the king or they change the history of God's people. And when you first meet them, you go, I would have never picked them. That's kind of the way heroes are though, right? I mean, you don't often know that somebody's the hero the first time you meet them. Like in a story or a novel or or a movie or or in the Bible, hero shows up on the page and they don't really look like a hero at first and then something happens, transformation takes place, something turns and all of a sudden they're, they're the hero. And Rahab, when we meet her, and Joshua 2.1 doesn't look anything like a hero. As a matter of fact, she doesn't look like anybody you would let your kids hang around, right? She doesn't look like anybody you would hang around. And yet God is about to turn her into the hero of this chapter, which is good because we need a hero. Because when we look at the two spies who went in, we quickly realize these are the worst spies in the history of earth. Like ever. Like chapter, verse 1, they go in. Notice what it says in verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, 
Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So they've been in country three hours and the whole government knows they're there. I mean, just it, They don't even know they're there. They know where they're staying. I don't know if Joshua pulled them aside before he sent them in and said, Okay, guys, look. The whole point of being a spy. It, I'm not a spy, but I'm thinking rule one in the spy handbook is nobody's supposed to know you're a spy. Nobody's supposed to know you're there. I, I, we've seen Jason Bourne, right? Jason Bourne gets in and nobody knows he's there. And if he gets caught, he's got all those gadgets to get out with, right? That's what a spy is supposed to be. These guys, three hours in, the king knows, the government knows, everybody knows who they are and where they are. Commentaries on the Bible are rarely funny. But I love this quote by David Howard. He writes, As agents of stealth, they were singularly ineffectual. Right? Sounds like a seminary professor, right? As agents of stealth, they were singularly ineffectual. And they were. King knows right where they are. Sends his guys. The hitmen show up. They're going to take care of it. Rahab opens the door. And she lies. She's hidden the guys up on the roof. Hit men come. Where are the guys? And she lies. And there's this little ethical debate around stories like this in the Bible. There's this ethical debate of was it right for her to lie or was it wrong? Like Should she have told the truth and trusted God to take care of his people? Or did she save people's life and therefore that's a greater good? And so it was a justifiable lie to tell all, all kind of arguments and debates. I don't know the answer to that. What I'm pretty sure of, this is not the first time this girl had told a lie. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure she's practiced at being dishonest. And the reason I think that is she's so good at it. She comes to the door and she says, nope, not here. They left. They went out that gate. If you hurry, you can catch them. And they all run away. Like she's done this before. She's good at it. She's, she's practiced. Rahab... And we meet in Joshua chapter 2 is this bag full of every bad decision a person could ever make. Like every wrong choice, every wrong turn, every bad decision. Life ended up in the complete wrong place. Everything about her was wrong. And yet, she's the hero. Notice what happens in verse 8 of Joshua 2. This is Rahab now. She's gone up to the spies before they go to sleep. She says, I, I just want to tell you one thing. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who lie in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did at Sihon and Og. The two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Guys, I just want you to know we've been keeping up with what's been going on. We've been reading the papers. Like news has gotten back to us. I've been watching you and our, our whole city is afraid of you because of what your God's been doing. 
The interesting thing about Rahab is that while the rest of the city was in fear, Rahab moved from fear to faith. Notice right at the end of verse 11, Rahab the lying prostitute said, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. As I'm watching your people, as I'm watching what's happened as you've been in the wilderness and the stories I've heard about you coming out of Egypt and passing through the Ritz, as I've been hearing stories of that, because we all know the stories, here's what I've determined. Your God's the real God. And she grew up in a polytheistic culture where there were sun gods and moon gods and harvest gods and rain gods, hundreds of gods But Rahab, the lying prostitute, in Joshua chapter 2, turns to God's people and says, no, your your God's the one. He's the only one. He's God of heaven. He's God of earth. I believe in your God. So she says to the spies, here's what I want you to do. Basically, I want to go with you. I want to be part of your people. I want to join the family. Will you promise me that you will rescue me and my family when you come back? Because I know you're coming back. You promise me that you will rescue us out of the death that is coming for our city. And the spies say, yes. They They say, we will show you mercy. It's the richest Old Testament word for kindness and grace and mercy. It's the word that means someone in a position of power shows kindness and mercy to someone without power. And the spies say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to rescue you. We're going to show mercy and kindness. And they use this wonderful phrase, our lives for your lives. Like on our life. Our lives for your life when we come back. Here's all you got to do. Don't tell anybody we were here. And place a scarlet thread in your window. So that when we come back, we'll know this is your family. And there's lots of debate over the symbolism of that scarlet cord. But I think in all likelihood, it's, it's pointing back to the Passover that night when God's people painted their doors with the blood of lambs and they were passed over when death came to the city that night. They were rescued out of death. But I think, it always points to, I think it also points to the future because thousands of years later, the Son of God was going to come to rescue us out of wherever we're living, rescue us out of whatever life we've had, whatever past we've had. Jesus was going to come, live a perfect life, and he was going to say at the end of his life, my life for your life. My life for you. I'm going to lay my life down. So that your life can be rescued. So that you can experience the grace, mercy, loving kindness of my Father. My life for your life. And to every Rahab that has ever lived. They've been offered this grace. This mercy. This love. To every Rahab that's sitting here today. God says... My son's life for your life. I want you to be in a family. I don't want you to experience judgment and death. I want you to be in the family. 
What happens to Rahab? In Joshua 6, and we'll talk about Joshua 6 in a few weeks. In Joshua 6, they come back, and sure enough, Rahab and her family are brought out. They're rescued, but they're not just rescued from that. They're rescued into the family of God. They become a part of God's family. Uh, So much so that Rahab becomes the great-great-grandmother of the greatest king Israel would ever have, King David. She's David's great-great-grandmother. She's in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. The family tree of the Son of God is a lying prostitute we meet in Joshua chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews is talking about people who had great faith. He's just making a big, long list. All these people had great faith, and this person had great faith, and this person demonstrated their faith. And Hebrews eleven thirty one, 31, he says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, just in case you forgot who she was, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She acted in faith. She responded in faith. James describes her as someone who acted in righteous ways in the way. That she saved the spies. The the woman that we meet who does not look like a hero becomes so much a part of the story of God, which, which reminds me that no one, no one is so far from God that His grace cannot bring them into His family. No one. No, no one that you've met in chapter 2, verse 1. Nobody, no, whatever their story or past, no one is so far from God that his grace that redeemed Rahab could not redeem them, including you. I mean, if, if there's something in your life that you're, you're thinking, oh, God could never forgive this or get over this or I can't get over this. Thousands of years ago, there was a lady who had done everything wrong. And she becomes the example of faith. And you could too. Another thing from Rahab, it's not, it's not where you started. It, it, it's really not Joshua 2.1 and everything that came before it that matters. It's where you are now because she came to a point where she was ready to confess faith. And maybe that's what you need to do. It's really not about all the stuff that's come before. It's about right now and what you will do with Christ who gave his life for your life. Reality is sometimes we have to just show up like Rahab regardless of our past. Because in spite of our past, God wants to give us a future. And you can trust Him to do that or you can keep trying to make your life work out your way. When the God of the universe has said, my son's life for your life to give you new life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we are never so far that your grace cannot bring us home. Your grace cannot bring us into the family. And there's a lot of us here that we don't look like heroes. We don't look like examples of faith, but you took a prostitute thousands of years ago, put her right in the middle of your family, and you could do that to anybody today. Anyone who would trust you and believe that Christ is their Savior through His death and resurrection. Anyone, anyone could know you. God, thank you for rescuing us, rescuing us 
out of what we deserve to experience and giving us new hope in Christ. Not just for this life, but for the next life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.